So it is that time for us to uh, break open the Word of God together and to study, to show ourselves approved. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We pick up where we left off two weeks ago, and I trust that you had a great time of worship uh, last Lord's Day uh, with Pastor Mark. Um, He is a great brother, and uh, he uh, was very delighted to be here among you. And uh, now I am very delighted to be among you. (laughs) It never gets old. So take your Bibles and let's uh, turn to Ecclesiastes 7. While you're turning there, let me say that we all know the disappointment of having to settle for a substitute, right? I know, you know. Substitute sweetener, non-dairy creamers, plant-based burgers, yuck. You may have had a favorite high school teacher, perhaps, and made your entire educational career bearable, if not worth it. His class was entertaining, and and he made learning fun, and you look forward to third period. And then the day came when you, you got there and found the substitute, and you were deflated. You sit there trying to muster the energy to do your homework in advance while the substitute sits there and reads his novel. Or maybe it's a favorite TV journalist who, who took vacation without your permission. And, and you don't know that he's on vacation until you turn the TV on and discover someone sitting there, some second-rate guy with an annoying hairstyle and an annoying voice to match that tells you Jim's on vacation. Oh, the dissatisfaction of not getting the best, which in your estimation, of course, uh, is important because there's no substitute for that. Would to God that people would think that way when they come to the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, and embrace it as their wisdom. Read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our Lord Je- the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, who called us by his own glory and goodness. We have everything we need, Peter says, for life and godliness in Christ. What a statement that is. But alas, this world has gone its own way. People have rejected God More precisely, they have exchanged the glory of faith, God's divine wisdom, for any one of its cheap substitutes because they prefer the substitute to the real thing. The the writer to the Ecclesiastes has stated really this over and over again. He has stated his express purpose is to show folks who live under the sun without... Uh, a relationship with God that they have substituted a, a life for above the sun true faith and as a result that kind of substitute fails miserably it will condemn them in the end and they need to turn really from it and embrace the faith not only does he tell them this but he speaks from experience from the vantage point of human wisdom in hopes of promoting God's way of life. Now, our passage this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're in verses 19 to 29, where we learn about one of faith's cheap substitutes, and that's human wisdom and our responsibility to those who embrace it. 
We learn specifically that it is not enough that Christians tell non-Christians that their precious human wisdom cannot cleanse them from sin or keep them from hypocrisy or guarantee them a correct interpretation and application of reality or help them discern the difference between sanity and insanity no matter how much they try. No, we must also live godly wisdom before them too. That is the thrust of the passage before us. Now, there are two applications uh, then that I want you to consider this morning. One comes directly from the text, and it tells, it's to tell non-Christians the truth, just as the sage does here. And we'll look at that uh, in the majority of our message this morning. The other is an implication that comes from the text, and it's live godly wisdom before the world. We're to live it, not only tell it. And I'll deal with that in the, uh, more comprehensively at the end. So let's talk about the first before us, this first application, telling the godless the truth about their hopeless condition. You'll notice that I jump right to the applications this morning. That's what the retreat will do for you. The four days at, uh, at the uh, pastor's conference was a wonderful thing. So I am burdened to get right to the application, but we will not bypass the text, of course. Number one, human wisdom cannot save you from your sin. It cannot save you from your sin. Now you know that all along the way the sage has been discrediting the godless life by espousing, I'm sorry, by exposing it rather, as utterly hopeless. And not only just the way of the godless, but the epitome of the way of the godless. The best that humanity has to offer is utterly hopeless. He's been doing that all along, every chapter. And human wisdom was one among the best, if you remember, back in chapter 2. And it takes center stage right now. Right out of the gate then, in verse 19, he develops this all-important truth that as great as human wisdom is... It cannot save a person from his sin. And this is, by the way, his way in with the gospel with unbelievers who prefer to rely 100% on their knowledge. I love this. The sage says, in essence, look, I know the allure of worldly wisdom. It gives people who have it an advantage over those who don't in many aspects of life. I understand. And that's true, isn't it? It's true. Knowledge is power. Your ignorance is my power. The more I know about a given situation, the better equipped I am to handle that situation. See how he does this in verse 19. He says, well, wisdom strengthens a wise person more than ten rulers who are in a city. Sure, I know that. These city officials have power and authority just like any uh, political official today. And, And that kind of power is much sought after. It, was, it is in our day, and it was in his day. Might was prized in the ancient Near East. If you were a force to be reckoned with, reckoned with, then you could secure your peace and your prosperity. Well, wisdom, he says, is more powerful than political might. The application of crucial knowledge in a particular context can be the most powerful tool a person has. If I dropped you out of a plane in the middle of the Amazon, 
Chances are you'll not make it a week if you have no knowledge of basic survival skills for the tropics. You'll either die of thirst in three days or food poisoning if something doesn't eat you before then. But as precious as this worldly wisdom is, there is a deceptive element to it, and it's this. My wisdom is all I need to understand and conquer life. That's the deception. As long as I can reason, people say, have my wits about me, I can achieve anything. Well, not so fast, says the sage. A power, as powerful as wisdom is it, it cannot save anyone from his sinful condition. Look at verse 20. Indeed, there is not a just person on earth who always does good and does not ever sin. Don't you love that? This is Ecclesiastes, at least 500 years before Christ. The wise of the earth, in verse 19, is the just, in verse 20. The, the two are one and the same. The idea here is that one can live justly, above board, always in the right when he lives by his wisdom. But that's a false notion, because no one is perfect. I think most people recognize that, at least, right? No one is perfect. You say, you're not perfect. Oh, no, no one's perfect. No. What they might not know or recognize is that our imperfection is clear evidence that we're sinners. There's the way in with the gospel. Now, the sage doesn't explain this to us in theological or deep theological terms, but if we pull the lens back, on the whole counsel of God, we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that, that there is no one who does good, not one. That all have gone astray, each to his own way. And the reason everyone sins is because everyone is a sinner. People don't become sinners by sinning. They sin because they're sinners, right? Human wisdom doesn't honestly reckon with man's sinful condition. Why is that? Well, because for a person to be convinced that he's a sinner, he has to believe that sin exists and have a clear definition of sin. And where does one find that knowledge? Well, it comes only from the Bible, of course. Oh, even false religions will, will come close to their, will come close, but their, their concepts of sin miss the mark totally, no pun intended. Only God's word will tell you that sin is the transgression of God's law, missing God's target of perfection, offending a holy God, loving something more than him, which is another God. And no one can arrive at this knowledge by application of human reason. It won't show you the, the true nature of yourself. It's bias. We have to go to God's word to learn about our sin that it entered the world through one man, Adam, and spread to all, per, all people without exception. And as a result, all are dead in trespasses and sins and have animosity toward a holy God. That's what it'll tell you. Paul addresses this specifically in Romans 5, verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world... The death and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. Every person on God's green earth is in sinful darkness and needs the redeeming work of Christ. 
And that's a precious bit of knowledge that comes only from divine wisdom. But we press on. Number two, wisdom, human wisdom cannot keep you from hypocrisy. The sage moves from the fact that everyone is a sinner to a specific example that, uh, that people are hypocrites. Hypocrisy is one of those perennial problems that humanity, uh, that plagues humanity and that people have actually cleverly learned how to rationalize away in certain circumstances when it benefits them. But according to verse 21, hypocrisy is hypocrisy no matter how you rationalize it. And here the worldly wise person discovered that his servants cursed him unjustly and wants to bring judgment on on them. The sage says, and do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you do not hear your servant cursing you. Huh. What a thing to say. What, what does this mean? You might be thinking, there doesn't seem to be any hypocrisy going on here. And why wouldn't someone who thinks he's being misrepresented by those he's associated with in some way not confront them? But the verse has a context, right? The sage is not saying that we shouldn't correct people's misconceptions of us that they spread. But according to verse 22, if we do this, we first should make sure that we are not guilty of the same thing. Boy, does that sound familiar? (laughs) Again, this is Ecclesiastes, 500 years before Christ. You know that even you have cursed others many times as well. Hmm. The worldly wise of verse 21 is guilty of the same injustices as those he criticized, and that makes him a hypocrite. Oh, he has spread false impressions of others many times when it suits him. And then he has the nerve to judge those who do the same to him. But that's worldly wisdom for you. Godly wisdom is very different indeed, and that difference is perhaps brought out most clearly in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. I think you were thinking of this. That's why I decided to put it in. First five verses Jesus said, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If we're going to expose the way the godless sinfully treat others, we must be ready to show them God's wise way of confronting our neighbor for his best interest. In this case, only the humble believer can, with the help of Scripture, do this. And, of course, that's Jesus' point. Well, what else does the sage say about human wisdom? Number three, it cannot guarantee you a correct interpretation and application of reality. Hmm. Where do you get your knowledge? Where do you, or what kind of knowledge is it that you acquire? What is your epistemology? You know, how you know what you know to be true. We ask our unbelieving listeners this question because, because knowledge is essential to wisdom, since wisdom is the application of knowledge. 
So godly wisdom applies God's absolute truth for godly living. Worldly wisdom applies satanic knowledge that produces only ungodly living. Now, Scripture lays this out um, very clearly, this contrast, in Genesis chapter 1. And there we see that God created human beings to rely on counsel outside themselves. Think about this for a moment. No one was, is ever born with innate knowledge. Adam, Adam was created. He didn't know a thing. God had to tell him. God's counsel was, was life-sustaining for Adam then. That was the counsel he was to depend on. It explained life, his vocation, what a woman was, how to relate to her, how to interpret the rest of creation, the animals and the plants, even down to his diet. A very important diet at that. Genesis 3, Satan introduces his counsel to Adam and convinced him that God's counsel is unreliable and too restricting. Adam dumps God's counsel overboard and embraces satanic counsel, which led him to the fall. Beloved, there are still only two counsels in the world. Only two. There's God's counsel and there's Satan's counsel. Both are designed to give you an interpretation of life. How to apply those interpretations to your life. Scripture gives the correct interpretation that leads to godliness and life. Satan's counsel misinterprets life and leads to ungodliness and death. Now, how do I know which is which? Well, God's counsel is the scripture alone. Sola scriptura. Satan's counsel is everything but. See how simple that is? Everything but. There are all kinds of philosophies and worldviews circulating around the world that people claim as their own precious wisdom. And it is precious to them. All contrary to the word of God. And therefore, it is satanic in origin. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. He refers to human reasonings and arguments as the fortresses of depraved humanity. A worldview worldview is likened to a fortress, and it is a fortress in that it provides you protection, comfort. It validates your actions and gives you identity when you're immersed in it. It's what the godless use to fortify themselves against the knowledge of God and his claims to obedience. Now, the sheer number of satanic worldviews is a testimony to the cleverness and effectiveness of the evil one. They're all different, some even opposite to others in their outlook, their goal, and what they advocate for living. Some support a lawless and immoral lifestyle. Others espouse a strict religious way. Still others, an honest, upright, and lawful existence. But none of them has any need for the God of the Bible, his Christ, or his gospel. And therefore, it is demonic and lethal. Paul lumps these many and varied anti-biblical views sourced in Satan himself, himself together in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, under the category 
of the doctrine of demons. Isn't that interesting? The doctrine of demons. Now, we assume by that category that the doctrine of demons refers to the many manifestations of demonic thought, right? But hear this. The fact that Paul calls demonic thought doctrine is significant. Our English word doctrine is a good translation of the Greek at this point, and it comes from the Latin, the English word comes from the Latin doctrina, which means teaching or instruction. And throughout the early centuries of the church, right through the medieval period, doctrina referred to moral and spiritual instruction. The Greek equivalent is catechism. What I'm saying is that Satan took the lie that he told Adam and Eve, you can be your own gods, and he neatly packaged it into a doctrine, a code of ethics, a creed, designed to affect people's lives, to give them structure, to give them an epistemology. And this, beloved, is the category to which human wisdom belongs even if, even in its most objective state, rationalism, no matter how scientific or medical or objective or pragmatic it is, it is anti-biblical and will keep a person in his sins. Paul's word doctrine occurs in Matthew 15, verse 9. It's where Jesus indicts the Pharisees and the scribes He says of them, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now notice that Jesus condemns them for teaching the commandments of men as doctrine, as their catechism, as their creed, their way of life, as something to live by. He was referring, of course, to the rabbinic tradition, a man-made body of do's and don'ts, the do's and don'ts, that they elevated far above Scripture. They intended it to guide people's lives and more, their worship of God. Jesus speaks in the context of worship here, right? The bottom line is that their doctrine for holy living produced vain and empty worship. They would never have known that unless the Lord told them. All code of ethics, worldviews, philosophies, reasonings, whether basic or complex, that is not what was once delivered to the saints. The faith is satanic and designed to doom anyone who subscribes to it. So the sage shows us its shortcomings when he himself tested it and, and found it wanting. He makes two profound observations about it. The first is in verse 23. He said, I tested all this wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but wisdom was far from me. Human wisdom is not all that it's cracked up to be. It makes empty promises, as the sage found out. He judiciously examines all that he encounters in life by this wisdom only to come up empty-handed. You see, human wisdom is based on life experiences and on the interpretations of those experiences. So it's never enough to provide all the answers of li- to life. For all its good points, it's severely limited. A catalog of past experiences, no matter how vast, is not enough to determine whether someone is moral 
or immoral. It's not valid or morally good, this, this human wisdom. People think this way, you see, though. They do. They, they really believe that they have the ability to do all this. They believe that a, as long, that a long life of varied experiences qualifies a person to speak authoritatively and wisely about life. So here's how that works, all right? Here's how that works. They make observations of life experiences. I endured a great hardship And here's what I observed. And they write it down. Then they interpret their observations. Hmm. Here's what I took away from that. And then they apply their interpretations to their own life. Based on what I've learned, I'll never do this or go there. Instead, I will do this and go there. And here's the problem with that. Fallen individuals cannot make perfect observations. And as people without the light of scripture, their interpretations are never 100% accurate. And without the indwelling Holy Spirit, their applications will always be wrong. In fact, the sage argues further in verse 24 that the only thing that this life experiences has taught him was that life is even more mysterious than past finding out. What has been is remote and very mysterious, who can discover it? The rhetorical question is meant to say, no one can discover the mysteries of life, not even by empirical study. But people live with mysteries, and at best, guess at their meanings, and the reasons behind them. But they can never be sure whether their best educated guesses are right or how they should respond to these mysteries. So they will always be frustrated. Again, another way in with the gospel. What's what's more here is that observation, experience, empirical research are enabled to measure and test the heart of an individual. So we cannot really know even ourselves truly by worldly wisdom either. Ever wonder why there are so many psychological paradigms out there, each with their own view of human nature? Only God's word tells us the true nature of the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus tells us that it is from the overflow of that wicked heart from our true selves, that all wickedness comes. The heart needs to be redeemed. God's intention in the new covenant that he promised in Ezekiel 36 was to give you a new heart and to put a new spirit in you to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And that's exactly what happens when someone is converted to Christ. Number four, Human wisdom cannot help you discern the difference between sanity and insanity. I love this particular section. It is the lengthiest by far, and I would argue the most profound. The sage begins in verse 25, I directed my mind to know and investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the wickedness of foolishness and the folly of insanity. At first blush, this investigation seems a bit odd something that only mental health professionals would devote their time and energies to, right? Anyone, who, anyone else who looks into these matters may be said to have a morbid view of people. 
But on closer examination, the, the sage's search is a common one. It's the people's search for an explanation of sane living that we might infer is motivated by their strong desire to establish sane living for themselves. Now, let me explain that. It's become blatantly obvious to us, all of us here in this room in just the past five years, that some Americans, and I think far less than the media wants us to believe, have been redefining sanity to fit their view of sane living in order to justify what to us is complete insanity. Think about what people in this country have been championing of late. The option for mothers to kill their newborns if they don't want them. Gender reassignment for children. Exposing elementary school students to drag queens at story time. Accompanying or accommodating children who want to behave like animals. And on and on and on. It's painfully obvious that the proponents of these new ways of life are not the least bit interested in wanting to know what is sane and insane, but greatly interested in establishing what is sane for themselves. And anyone who dare, who dare say otherwise is insane. Paul's brief discourse on Romans 1 is proof enough of this, I think. Humanity rejected God and his word, and what happened? God gave them over to their passions, gross immorality and perversion. Paul deliberately used the words, <clears throat> the word natural in this passage, explaining that they exchanged what was natural and God's sanctioned for unnatural, sane, insane, good, bad, moral, immoral, and so on. The fallen beat down there, suppressed the truth that, that there is a sovereign and holy God to believe the lie that they are their own gods. <clears throat> and that new bit of satanic counsel becomes the foundation of their conscience, which confirms their actions. And now there's no way for them to determine right from wrong, moral from immoral, immoral good from bad. It's all a rather insidious process. When you take God and his word out of the equation of life, you take out the only sound means of knowing with certainty what is sane and insane. There is an example of this key truth in verse 26. The sage starts this way, And I discovered as more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. And in that moment of confrontation with such a danger, He tells us confidently that the one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the the sinner will be captured by her. You know the, the reference to one who is pleasing to God by now. You know it as a technical phrase in this book for a genuine believer, someone who's been born from above the sun, who lives by a biblical worldview, a godly wisdom, as Paul is keen to point out in 1 Corinthians 1, Now, just a word of caution here, okay, clarification. The sage is not saying that the godly couldn't be caught in this particular sin. Many have. Nor is he saying that all unbelieving men will necessarily find themselves sooner or later trapped by this woman. He speaks really to the character of godliness as over against the character of ungodliness and the fruit of both. 
So those whose hearts are redeemed and are now disposed toward pleasing God as their main goal in life will be on guard, applying the godly wisdom that they now have in their grasp and are careful to avoid such situations that could wind them up trapped by such an individual. At the same time, the ungodly have no choice but to lead sinful lives. No choice. They have no defense against the lure of such an individual, which they are likely to give in to. In fact, their human wisdom may even justify a deliberate visit to her lair. Beloved, for the godless who have no access to godly wisdom, to God's special revelation, to the faith, people and life in all its dimensions are really past finding out. Now, this truth becomes evident to all people sooner or later, depending on their particular worldview and life experiences, how fast they mature and and what they're exposed to. When it comes to situations and events, they admit sooner or later that life is such a mystery. Who knows what will happen? There are so many twists and turns in life and the, the unfair treatments, the randomness and the unpredictability. And then there are people. They say... I just don't get people sometimes. Just when you think you've, you've got someone figured out, he surprises you. I thought I knew him. I, I guess I was wrong. He's not the man I married. You've known your coworker for years and believe he's got your back until he stabs you in the back. The nicest people turn out to be the, gre- the greedy who sue you for no good reason at all. So try as they might to account for all the mysteries of life and to understand what makes people tick. They come up short every time. There's so many reasons why people treat each other badly that we'll never know. We cannot know the human heart. And in frustration we cry, cry, things just don't add up. And this is exactly the conclusion of the sage in verse 27. And first part of verse 28, Behold, I discovered this, says the preacher, by adding up one thing to another to find an explanation, which I'm still seeking but have not found. Here he gives us an example of just how frustrated he is and his failed attempt to put two and two together by human wisdom and experience. According to the rest of verse 28, he actually conducted an investigation of human nature by surveying a thousand men, and he could only figure out one. I found one man among a thousand. And when he applied the same empirical investigation to women, there wasn't even one that he could figure out. They remained completely mysterious to him. But I have found, or not found, a woman among these How ironic, beloved, how ironic it is that we should read of the sage's failure to understand the genders by means of human wisdom in an age such as ours where many claim by the same means to have figured it out. Have they? I don't think so. Maybe now you have a better idea why the writer to the Hebrews stresses so much the importance of biblical doctrine, so that we may discern good from evil. Remember? It seems to get harder and harder to do that with each passing year in this culture. Sage 
brings this section to a close with a godly wisdom that he was taught. Godly wisdom teaches that God made people upright, but they have exchanged uprightness with many of their own schemes. Verse 29 is the sage's bottom line observation, which for us is really what the Holy Spirit himself wants us to know. Behold, he says, I have found only this, that God made people upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This declaration comes not from human experience or human wisdom, but really from the sage's heart of faith in Yahweh and his biblical epistemology that is grounded in his Hebrew Bible, the Torah. He steps out of his experiments on human wisdom to make this sobering judgment about human nature. God made men and women to be one way, that is, upright, and they have rebelled and gone their own way. The Hebrew word translated upright in this verse has several meanings in the Hebrew Bible, but here the sage has given us a clear idea of what he means by stating its opposite in the second half of the verse. They go their own way. So to be clear, God made human life deliberately and distinctly to be one way, the straight and narrow way, God's way, a way that is just and right and moral as God defines those terms, a way that acknowledges him as sovereign Lord and submits to his will and takes pleasure in him. And the lot that he has given by his mercy and grace, it is a life that operates by an above-the-sun worldview. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him And he will make your paths straight. Straight. That was God's intent. And that's how he made Adam. An innocent, dependent, trusting, representative of the creator. A straight individual. Not crooked. But humanity makes God's straight way crooked. Demoralized it made it less than just and good and right and praiseworthy, exchanged God's truth upon which life should be grounded for a satanic lie and worshipped the creation instead of the creator. The Hebrew word for devices or schemes that the sage uses in the very last section of this verse, last phrase, it's found elsewhere in the Old Testament only one other time. And that's 2 Chronicles 26. In verse 15, the chronicler refers to the ingenuity of the Judean king Uzziah. Remember Isaiah's king in the year that Uzziah died? It says this, In Jerusalem, Uzziah made machines of war invented by skillful workmen to be on the towers and corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. So his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. So King Uzziah had an idea about modernizing his weaponry and he consults with inventive men of the nation to devise a great weapon that would wipe out large sections of an advancing army. This was the Old Testament version of the Manhattan Project, you might say, where 
Uzziah calls the Einsteins and the Oppenheimers of his day to invent this war machine, the first and best of its kind, which made Judah a force to be reckoned with. The word for machines is inventions. And the same word is used to describe the men who made them, inventive. The Hebrew phrase in this verse literally reads, the inventions of inventive men. So Uzziah had inventive and skillful men invent inventions. In this context, war machines, which were like catapults hurling huge stones and shooting many arrows at once. Sage uses inventions, this very word, in Ecclesiastes 7.29, last phrase, to refer not to war machines, but to people's cunning ways of taking God's just and straight life and making it crooked. They're real good at that. Anything that man invents to supplant and replace what God has established for life and godliness is far from just and is altogether satanic, right? Mm. Proverbs 6.25, there is a way which seems right to a person, but its, its end is the way of death. Mm. Isaiah 53.6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And our own way, Isaiah calls the wrong way in the rest of the verse, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us to fall on him. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5 assert that humanity has set up their many and varied worldviews against the word of God. A marriage is not between one man and one woman. Humans are not defined by their gender. It is no longer pedophiles, but minor attractive people. But it's our job in evangelism to take such thoughts captive to Christ. We conclude our time in Ecclesiastes 7 in James chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, which was our scripture reading for this morning, James talks about two wisdoms, two wisdoms, two counsels that we know as God's, which is scripture and faith, once for all delivered to the saints, and Satan's cheap substitute, namely human wisdom, the doctrine of demons. More than this, however, is our clear responsibility as believers to show the wisdom of God in the way we interact with each other and the world. We not only point out and expose what is wrong and then supplant these satanic ideologies with the biblical worldview and the gospel, but we must live it as well. That is an implication of this text. We need to show the wisdom of God in the way that we interact with each other and others. And here's the second application that I want to bring to you, a demonstration of godly wisdom before the world. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. This is divine wisdom. This is gospel truth manifest in gospel living. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That's how the world behaves. The wisdom, this wisdom is not that which comes from above. See how the wisdom dictates the behavior. No, it's earthly and natural and demonic. 
James says. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, then gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There is no question that the application of divine truth produces a lifestyle that is vastly different from the world. And when it is on display in your life, beloved, it will add support to your proclamation. Non-Christians who are on the receiving end of our peace-loving, gentle, kind, merciful, impartial, and unhypocritical acts will be in a better place to hear the gospel. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us, for giving us such a passage that was composed so many years ago, millennia ago. And yet it rings true to us. We New Covenant believers we hear Jesus teaching in it. We do pray, O oh God, that you will minister to our hearts through the truth set here in black and white by the writer of Ecclesiastes, that we will we'll take this truth, this wisdom from above, and that we will, be, we'll, we will live it aggressively and clearly. May people who know us know Christ as a result. This is our prayer, O God, in this day, in this hour. We pray you will grant us success as we live Christ to the world for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.